morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, Once again, from the book of Haggai, (laughs) chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty said. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the all, sorry, this is what uh, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in the paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but, they're, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thoughts to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I might take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I feel like I need to welcome you to our evening service tonight. I'm really thrown off by that over there. Um, in case you're wondering, we, we have VBS this week, and so we're setting up. So yeah, this sanctuary is going to be turned into the universe um, this weekend, so this week. So it'll be fun to have. We've got 100 kids coming um, starting Tuesday, so that's what's going on over there. It's been throwing me off. It feels like evening right now. Um, good to see you all. Uh, so I have sad news, personal news to report to you guys, and some of you already know this, but many of you know my wife, Carrie. And uh, her mom, Karen, died last Sunday afternoon, uh, very unexpectedly. And um, so it's been a very, very rough uh, week in the Gunlock household. And, uh, and she was 73. We thought we had at least a decade or more left with her. She was in good health. And um, about, about a month, maybe three weeks ago, she had some kind of stroke-like symptoms went in, was in the ER for a couple days, and they found an aneurysm, uh, and, but they were, they were able to find it, and they put a stent in, and they said, we found it, so glad we caught it, and, um, and uh, went home, and we got to be, actually, two weekends ago, we got to all be together for, our, for the annual family vacation, which was so sweet, and she was almost at 100%, uh, and then last Saturday night, she had a, just a massive brain hemorrhage, and... Um, and was, yeah, was, uh, you know, went to the, the hospital and uh, the nuclear family was able to be around her. They actually had to intubate her right away and basically keep her alive um, while the family could be there. And uh, they were around her and they pulled the tube out and she died uh, at about one o'clock last week, uh, this, this day. So, so it's been a very sad day. Many of you, of course, know my wife and you know her love for her family. And so she's been very sad and low. And um, so we're just processing all that, uh, many of you know how this journey is, and uh, so um, we feel very loved, very supported, and um, there's, there's not a lot, honestly, practically that we need, so we'd love to cover your prayers, and, uh, and many have already, you know, reached out to us, and um, so I just thought it would feel weird not to share that with you. That's 
we're right in the thick of that right now. And um, so it's interesting. I went, well, one of my good friends, um, uh, actually Paul Eshelman, who kind of started the Jesus film. You guys know that? He died recently. And his son is one of my, my good buddies from college. And his service was last Saturday before I knew anything was happening with Carrie. And so I've had all this, this last week, um, you know, these moments I've been reflecting on just like, what's, what's important? Like, what, what do I want my life to be about? And as you all know, death and loss has this way of just kind of clarifying things and, and stripping away certain things. And I have been feeling um, a bunch of things. One is, man, I worry about a lot of things that are not worth worrying about at all, really, in the grand scheme of themes. And, 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 um, and I go, I pursue things. I, I, I devote myself to things sometimes that really, I'm like, that's, in the end, is that really worth <laughs> that much of my time? But it, it, it is triggering these questions like, what is most important in life? Like, what, what, is, what needs to be first? And, um, and we're looking at Haggai today, which um, I'm sure you haven't looked at in years, if ever. Um, but I, I say that that's really actually the, that's kind of, as I was studying Haggai this week and going through what I'm going through, that, that's actually what Haggai's all about. This, this book is about this question, what, what is most important? What is it that, that you are going to prioritize? What is going to come first in your life? That's the, the whole message of Haggai is about that, as we'll see. I'll have to give you a bunch of background to get you there. But that's, that's essentially it. It's confronting us with this question, what are you all about? Like, what are you going after? And what in the end do you want to be pursuing? And the biblical answer is simple to say. Love God with all you've got and love people. That's kind of all that matters in the end. And everybody, on, no one on their deathbed is saying, gosh, I wish I put five more hours into the office, right? We think about the people we love. We think about the God, if we're Christians, the God that we, we, we love, and that's the biblical answer. Seek first the kingdom. And yet, um, I think we all relate to so many other things can take priority over that. Um, but Haggai is asking us that question. I was asking um, the people of Israel hundreds of years ago, where are your priorities? What is most important? So I'm going to walk through this book with you today. Um, I'm going to give you some background. So sometimes I'll tell you, like, yeah, this, this book was written sometime in the 6th century, right, B.C. I can tell you this is 520 B.C., late August, okay? So the dating is very specific. Uh, and, and let me tell you what has happened in Israel since last week when we were looking at Habakkuk, which was 80 years before that. What has happened is Babylon has happened, okay? And just as Habakkuk prophesied, God was raising up the Babylonians to discipline his people, and that's what has happened. They have... They have come into Jerusalem, uh, they have conquered Israel, they have destroyed Jerusalem, they have decimated the temple, and they carried the people off into exile, as God said would happen. And so they spent 70 years in a foreign land in exile, but before they even left, uh, before they were carted away, God prophesied through Jeremiah, famous words from Jeremiah, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, when you've spent 70 years as slaves in a foreign land, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, your homeland. Famous line, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. 
we like to put these on cards. We forget he was saying those words to a group of people who are about to spend 70 years in exile. But God says, yet I have these ultimate plans for my people, and I will bring you back into the land. And he did, and he raised up another empire, the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians, and their king Cyrus had this remarkable policy, which is unheard of. He would allow the enslaved peoples of his land to return to their ancestral lands. And that was like, I mean, Scripture says God raised up Cyrus for this purpose. I mean, what, what kind of ancient king does that sort of thing? And yet this was part of God's people, the plan to bring his people back into the land. And so through Cyrus, a group, a remnant of Jews are able to come back into the land. And that's where we find them in Haggai. And our last three uh, books that we we'll look at, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are all post-exilic Jewish experience. After the exile, they've come back into the land, a remnant, and they're trying to pick up the pieces of an old kingdom, okay? I mean, whatever that looks like. Um, trying to rebuild Israel, literally rebuild it, as we'll see, and, and figuratively rebuild Israel. Um, one important aside, is, I've been wanting to say this all summer in this series, that you need to understand some good biblical theology. All of this that happened, the exile, the return, all of this is God's covenant with Israel playing itself out. And here's what you need to know. The Mosaic covenant that God established with the nation of Israel through Moses um, was a very specific covenant. And there's built into that covenant, there were certain consequences that God said, these will happen depending on how you respond. If you obey me, you will be blessed by me. If you disobey me, you will experience curses. And he meant like material, tangible blessings for obedience and tangible uh, bad circumstances for disobedience. Let me just show you this. Back in Deuteronomy, and I'm gonna, it's important that you, there's a lot of things that we can go wrong with if we don't understand this in, in scripture. This is God through Moses back at the establishment of the covenant. If you fully obey the Lord and follow his commands, all these blessings will come upon you. He's talking about the nation of Israel. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your room will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock. The Lord will open the heavens to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the works of your hands. Your enemies will be defeated before you. Okay, this is built into the covenant. I'm going to materially bless you for obedience, but... If you do not obey the Lord and do not follow his commands, all these curses will come upon you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into powder. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Okay? So very specific, it's kind of like, this is a fledgling, it's kind of what you do with little kids. Like you make it really clear. Here's when you do the right thing, you know, you get rewarded. When you do the wrong thing, you, you experience a discipline. And this, is, this was built into the covenant. And so exile, the, the, the enemies coming and defeating, that was built into the covenant because they had disobeyed for so many years. And the prosperity, when they experienced prosperity, was built into that covenant. I say all that just to remind you, we are no longer under the Mosaic covenant, Okay. So this is no longer how God deals with his people, the church. And, and that's important to realize because, you know, there's a thing called the prosperity gospel that's out there that you've probably heard of over the years. You sometimes see it on TV, especially if you grew up in the 80s, you know, when it was really thriving. Uh, but it's still thriving around the world. And, and the thought is, 
if you're succeeding, if, you're, if your life is blessed, well, that's because you know, you've been doing something right. You've been obeying God, and if, if things have kind of gone south in your life, well, maybe you need to look inside and go, what, what sin is causing this? And Jesus totally debunks that, that, that formula in the new covenant. He says, this is no longer um, how it works for the people of God. But we're tempted to think it, it is that way. Um, but we're not under that. I say that because you're gonna see this playing out in Haggai's time, but that doesn't mean it plays out in our time, right? And, and that's why it's all part of God's faithfulness to his people. This was built into the covenant. All right, does that make sense? Okay, so um, many of you have been asking me about that uh, in this series. Like, are you gonna talk about that? So I just talked about it. Um, so the situation is, this is a long-winded way of getting into this, a remnant has returned to the land. It's a smaller group. And think about it. Life is precarious. You're, you're back in, you're, I mean, there's rebels of an old kingdom. And you're trying to figure out, how do, we, how, do we, um, how do we do this? Life is precarious. There's a lot of unknowns. And the question is this. How will we rebuild this nation? On what foundation? What are we going to prioritize, to my question? What is going to matter to us now that we're a new generation of Jews coming back into the land? And the book of Haggai is addressing one single issue, and it's this. It's the rebuilding of God's temple in the land. And Haggai's calling the people, you need to prioritize the rebuilding of God's temple. Okay, so let's look at, look at, um, look at verse 8. This is the call. Go up into the mountains, bring down timber, and build my house. God, this is God speaking. He's talking about the temple. So that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Okay, this is the call to build my temple. And here's what had happened. About 20 years before Haggai, the people had come back into the land. You can read this in the book of Ezra. And they had, they had quickly begun to rebuild the temple. They knew this is important. God has rescued us. We want to honor him. And they actually rebuilt the foundations of the temple. Uh, but then two things happened. They experienced some opposition from some of the kind of local population that was still there who didn't really want a, a temple and a, a people group to establish. So they, they kind of opposed the building of it. And the other thing that happened is life just got hard, <laughs> right? It's not easy, <laughs> trying to build your homes again and establish crops and, and create a society again. And it just got tough to do. And so they scrapped the project. Foundation is laid, but the project scrapped. It had, left it had been left dormant for 19 years. Look, basically imagine a construction site just kind of left dormant for 19 years. And so Haggai's saying, you guys need to prioritize this. You need to finish what you started. Now let me show you a... a, a a rendition of the temple, uh, maybe not this post-exilic temple. As New Covenant Christians, you might ask, like, what's the big deal? This is a building project. How, how important can this building project be? And we need to, I just want to remind you, temple meant what the temple represented in the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? This was part of the covenant, and the temple was God's house. This is where God's spirit dwelt with his people in a very tangible way. Like, I want a house right in your neighborhood, people, because I dwell among you. So this represents my presence with you. And think about what else happened in the temple. This is where sacrifices, right, animal sacrifices were offered on the altars of this temple for the forgiveness of people's sins. So this is where people experienced forgiveness, how their relationship with God was maintained and repaired. And this is, of course, where, where the corporate community came together for, for worship in, in profound ways. 
So this, this house is not just a house. This represents the people's relationship with God, his presence among them, his forgiveness, the ongoing worship of God's people. Now, this is all fulfilled for us in the coming of Jesus, right? In the spirit, we are now the temple. But then this is their relationship with God. And so God is saying through Haggai, Israel, where are your priorities, right? This nation needs to be rebuilt on its relationship with me. I need to come first for you. I need to be your top priority. And you should feel an urgency. You should be feeling, if God isn't dwelling among us, what's, that's all we've got is our relationship with Yahweh. That, should, that we should feel an urgency to do this. This is, this is the most important thing about our nation. So God is calling the people through Haggai to prioritize their relationship with him. And the people, of course, he's, he's um, confronting an attitude in the people. And I want you to look at verse 2. This is the attitude he's confronting. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's temple. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? This is the problem. They're thinking, the time hasn't yet come. We, we want to rebuild the temple, but now is not the time. Okay? And I want you just to like feel, it's very understandable what they're feeling. Okay? We're, we're, just trying to, we're just trying to figure out life in the land. Like We've got our own houses to take care of. We're, we've got to rebuild uh, our communities. We've got uh, you know, crops to, to rebuild. And, um, we're, and they, they've had a couple years of drought, you're going to find out. And I mean, we're just trying to survive on our own. We're just, we're just trying to make, it, make our own lives work. And it, just, it doesn't feel like now is the time. There will be a time to do that, but now is not the time. Very understandable. Um, but also problematic. God had just rescued them, brought them back to the land. They should prioritize, prioritize them uh, above all things. And did you notice in verse 4, that little description of the houses they're building? You're living in your paneled houses. I think that suggests a level of, um, of luxury and comfort. Carrie and I bought a house like 10 years ago. We, we chose not to buy a house for this very reason. Um, it's a stucco exterior and... Um, no, but that, that you can hear in that, um, there's, your priorities have shifted. Like, you, you guys are, that is a comfortable, that is an opulent house in, in ancient terms. Like, you guys are, you guys have, you guys are going after other things, after comfort, after, after, a, a level of luxury, and yet my house lies, you know, with only its foundations. We're, your priorities, Israel, have really shifted. And so here's God's call to them. Look at, he says it twice. Look at verse five. Now this is what the Lord Almighty, Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Look at verse seven. Give careful thought to your ways. Israel, stop. Step back. Think about what you're doing. And then he says, I want you to make some connections with what's going on. Look at verse six. You've planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse, uh, in a purse with, hole, with holes in it. Guys, things aren't going so well. I don't know if you noticed, you look around, but things haven't gone so well for you. Look at verse 10. Therefore, because of you, your disobedience, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. 
I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything, everything else the ground produces. Okay, God's saying, look around. Notice the drought that's been here. Notice how your harvests haven't been very great. I want you guys to make the connection between those circumstances and your attitude. Again, this is the Mosaic Covenant, like I said earlier, playing out. And I think it's so interesting. I could, you think about from the people. Like the people are like, we're having droughts. We're, we're just barely making it. We got we to gotta take care of ourselves first because things aren't going so well. And then when that's kind of taken care of, we got all that, then we can rebuild God's house. And God's like, do you see the irony in that? <laughs> like it's the opposite. I'm like, put me first. This stuff will take care of itself. Like this is how this, you trust me, prioritize me. I will provide all these things. You, it's, you got it the wrong way. And that is such a relatable, uh, I think, I totally relate to that. But you've got to change this. So how do you think the people respond? This is called dead air, folks. <laughs> I have great news. They actually respond well. I think for the first time in the Minor Prophets, you have to get to Haggai, the people have a great response to, to Haggai calling them out in their priorities. Go to verse 12. I love this. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, he is the like Davidic kingly line governor at the time. Joshua is the high priest, son of Jezodak, the high priest. And the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Look at that. They obeyed his voice and they feared him. And they said, we've been doing it our own way. It's not working. Maybe it's time to do it God's way. God, we want to put you first. We're going to do this and we're going to trust you to provide for us. And they start to rebuild. Verse 13, I love God's response to the people's response. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. I love this dynamic. God calls the people out, and they, they, they hear it, and they obey, and they fear him, and God says, mm, I'm so with you, and guess what? I'm stirring up your spirit. The very thing that you've, you've vowed to do for me, I'm going to help you do it. <laughs> I'm not going to leave you to do it on your own. And he stirs them up, and he says, I'm so pleased with what you're doing, and they start to rebuild the temple. Okay, I want to just show you a little bit of chapter two, and then I'll, I'll stop. So let's look at what happens next. So they, they start rebuilding. And um, this chapter two takes place two months later. So they've, they've started going, they're two months into their project. And Haggai has another word for the people. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, I'm just gonna shorthand this to Judah, uh, to Joshua, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, verse three, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory. How does it look to you now? Does it not seem like nothing? And here's what happened. They start rebuilding this thing, and um, 
Well, let me tell you, when they, this happened 19 years ago. When they, in Ezra, you can read it. When they started rebuilding the foundations, they put the foundations together, and the people who had never been in Israel, they're rejoicing, like, we're rebuilding the temple, this is amazing. But you had some like 70 and 80-year-old folks who had been in Israel before the exile, who had seen the previous temple, and they're seeing this new temple built, and the scope is so much smaller. And they're just like, oh, this is such a let, like this is, and they actually are, they start to weep as they see the difference between the original Davidic temple and this new temple they're building. And in Ezra, it, uh, it actually says this, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of the weeping. And that's what's happening again. And the people rebuilding, but those who saw it before like, oh, this, is, this doesn't look like much. And, um, and, and they're disappointed. And uh, you can imagine, like you'd think, God, if we're gonna, we're answering your call and we're gonna prioritize you and the temptation would be to think, if we do that, this is gonna be epic, this is gonna be awesome. It was certainly, it's not gonna be a disappointing thing, a small thing, and they're doing it faithfully and it feels, it's, it's anticlimactic. It feels like a small thing. And so through Haggai, God wants to speak to the people in the midst of that disappointment. And here's what he says, look at verse four, right? It does, doesn't it seem, it may seem like nothing to you. Verse four. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, be strong, Joshua, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And I love God coming along the side of the people and saying, I know this this is a disappointment. This doesn't feel as big as you. This feels like a very small thing. And I think he's saying to his people, this is not a small thing to me. This might feel small to you. This is not small to me. What you guys are doing, you are honoring me. I am delighted in this. I am with you in this. Be strong. Don't be afraid. Finish the project. I delight in your hearts that want to follow me, even in something that feels a little disappointing to you. And then he goes on to prophesy, I won't even get to you, in, in verse six about what he will do in the future where he will, he will make this temple that is, that is just beautiful and big and awesome and all the nations will come to this temple, something that we ultimately, I think, is fulfilled in the new covenant. But he comes alongside his people and just encourages them and says, I get it, this feels small to you, but I see your hearts and that's what I care about and I'm with you in this and I delight in what you're doing. Okay, so that is the message of Haggai, for the most part. I left some stuff out, but that's what we could cover today. So, um, this series uh, on the Minor Prophets, I, I told you the first week, is about getting at the heart of God. What is on God's heart? And today, we have a God, we see a God whose heart is this. I want to be the most important thing in your life. I want you to give me first and top priority. I don't want a distracted love or a disinterested love or a half-hearted, half-hearted love or, or a love that, that loves when it's convenient, when everything that you need taken care of in your life is taken care of. I want your passionate love. I want to be first. I want your first love. I want you to love me when it's hard. I want you to love me when it's easy, when it's inconvenient, when it's convenient. I want to be first. I want you to seek first my kingdom. 
Seek first me and my righteousness above all things. I will care for you. I will take care of the rest. You seek me first. And I want to acknowledge that message is very challenging in a place and time where so many other priorities are vying for our attention. Amen? And, and you know, I was, I was so convicted by verse 2. This was the most convicting thing for me in, in chapter 1. Verse 2. Remember what? The, oh, I'm in Zechariah. That's the wrong book. The, these people say, the time has not yet come. Right? It, it, it's not... It's not the right time. They didn't say no. Of course we're gonna, we want to rebuild the temple. It's just now is not the time. And I thought, what a convicting reality that I think so many of us experience. When we, we picture this life of devotion, like, God, I want to put your kingdom first. None of us say no. We just usually say, the time hasn't yet come. For now, now is not the time. And we imagine uh, the future, like some nebulous place in the future where life will open up or things will free us up, where we imagine where we will, at some point, some things will click and we'll come to that passionate devotion to Christ first and foremost. And there's all sorts of reasons why now is not that time, <laughs> right? I want that. Just, gosh, now is not the time. And there's so many good reasons why now is not the time. I'm getting this company up and running, right? I, I, the next couple of years, they're gonna be a grind, I just get, and, and then I will devote myself to the Lord, right? We just saw five kids up. Gosh, we got little kids. We're just going to survive little kids. And, uh, and, then, and then there'll be a time when we'll seek first the kingdom. Um, gosh, we're in those busy seasons, and the kids, we're just, we're just chasing kids from sport to sport and from activity to activity. It's just, it's just a crazy season of life. Uh, but when, that freeze, when that's over, then <laughs> the time will come. Or, gosh, we just want to travel for a while. Just love to just do that and enjoy that. And then, and then we'll devote ourselves to the Lord. Or something as simple as, heck, it's, it's, it's almost all, it's summertime. <laughs> you know, falls around the corner, and that's when we'll get into our, our rhythms of devotion. It's summertime. Now's not the time. Right? There's always, always a good reason um, why now is not the time? And there's a big problem with that thinking, and it's this right here. This is from Annie Dillard. Something I read 20 years ago, it hit me. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and that one is what, in fact, we are doing. <laughs> how we spend this day and then the next day and the next is what our lives are composed of. Right? We imagine this life that we want, but then if you look at how I actually spent yesterday and the day before, are those connected with this life that you envision? But how we live is how we live until we die, and death can come at any moment. I remember, I remember meeting with a young couple. I was doing premarital counseling. This was like 15 years ago. And we were talking about money. And just, you know, you guys are coming together. How, what do you, how are you thinking about money? What would it look like to to prioritize God and your money, to, to be generous givers of, of your first fruits of your money. And the husband said, well, I'm going into grad school, and so we're gonna take out debt for that. And um, so this, feels, this doesn't feel like a time to start that. And I said, <laughs> I totally get that. When do you expect to be out of debt? And he said, probably about 10 years. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's 10 years of not being able to give of something. I mean, what would it look like just to start that habit 
Now, in, in a super small way, I'm not suggesting, I wasn't even encouraging them to give to grace. I was just talking about just giving to God's kingdom. And I said, because here's the problem. You, you might get out of debt in 10 years, but chances are in 10 years, you guys are really going to want to buy a house. And that costs a lot of money. And, and you're going to buy a house, and chances are you'll want to have kids. And um, kids are really expensive. And, and then you might want to send your kids to college. And that's really expensive. And then you may want to travel. And, and there's a good chance that 40, 50 years could go down the road. And you could look back on your life. And we had always intended to give. But man, life just kind of, there was just a momentum to life that just sort of happened. And we were just trying to keep up with our lives. And you will have never done what you believe you're supposed to do. And, and I think like that, I think so many of us, maybe especially in Orange County, experience our lives that way. Like, I, I feel like I'm just, my life has its own momentum, right? There's just things that are in my life, and it's just running, and I'm on this treadmill just trying to keep up with it. And so Haggai is an opportunity to stop for a moment and to go, just step back for a second and do what Haggai says, give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. Just, can you step back for a minute and just look at the stuff of your actual life and go, if I'm honest and I look at this, would I say this life represents someone who is seeking first the kingdom of God? Or would this represent someone who is pursuing convenience and comfort and wealth and fun and you name, you fill it in with whatever it is. But to stop and look at your actual life and go, is, is this what Jesus calls us into or not? And to say, just because it's normal does not mean it's right. And I was thinking this week, I feel like we need that mantra in Orange, as Orange County Christians. Like, every day I should wake up and say, just because it's normal doesn't mean it's right. Just because everybody else in and outside the church is doing life this way doesn't necessarily mean because it's normalized, that it's the way of Jesus. And Haggai gives us that opportunity to stop and go, gosh, can I step back for a second, get off the treadmill for enough time to go, is this it? Is this, is this what I'm called to? Or is God calling me into something deeper than this? And, and, and Haggai gives us a, a, a God's heart that says, man, I actually want more from you than that. I don't want to be a side project. I want to be your first and primary priority. I will care for your life. You don't have to worry about the care of your life. I will take that for you. Seek me first. It's convicting, yes? And it's comforting, too. I, th I think there's great news in, in the book of, of Haggai. God is not just saying, I, I want more from you. I think actually through Haggai, God says, I have more for you than that. And that's the thing we forget. I have more for you than this life where you are trying to grab all these priorities and secure your, your comforts and your conveniences and your experiences, all this stuff. Like, you think that's it. I actually have more for you than that. Jesus says, I came to give you life, life to the full. God's like, I, man, I have treasures for you that are so much better than the treasures of the world. They, they're better, they're superior. I have an identity to give you that is so much more foundational and freeing than the identity this culture wants to give you and your accomplishments or, or whatever else. 
Um, I have a purpose. I have an adventure for you that is bigger than the American dream. It's better. It's bigger. Think about the things that Chris was sharing today. I love hearing those stories of what God's up to in this world. But I think that we have a God who says, I actually, I want more for you, from you than that, but I have more for you than where you're trying to hold all this stuff together and bring me in on the side. I have something better for you than that. I'm inviting you into something better. And the last thing I'll say is this. I love what I see with, with God and the people in Haggai. I think we have a God who says, man, if you are willing to, to look at your life and go, I need to make some changes in, in some areas, and actually to take steps to make changes, I will help you do that. I am with you. I love just your desire to want me more. It pleases me so much. And even if you try to make changes and it feels anticlimactic to you, feels like, ah, oh, this, is, this is supposed to feel epic. It doesn't feel quite as romantic as I had hoped. It's not small to me. That matters. You making decisions to prioritize me in little ways, in ways that are real, I love that. My spirit is with you in that. I don't need it to look dramatic. <laughs> I don't need it to look um, provocative. I just want it to be faithful. It's little faithful things. People may not even see the changes, but I'll know them, and I'm pleased by them. And so this is the invitation of Haggai, and I want to invite you into that this morning to, to step back and just give careful thought. And maybe there's like one place. You can't change your life all at once. But maybe there's one area of your life or one issue in your life where today is God's word you saying, put me first in this. Put me first and trust what I'll do when you do that. So I want to invite you into that. I'm going to call Mark back up. And it's really interesting. Haggai um, fits really nicely with some things that are stirring in him as he gets ready for uh, this year of Axios. So I'm going to invite him. He's, he's just going to, for a minute, just kind of share his own inner reflections on this wonderful journey, however dramatic or undramatic it may be. Very undramatic. So uh, this morning, um, I was still in bed, and I opened up. I just wanted to read through Haggai, and um, uh, it hit me what we were just learning uh, this morning. And I just want to share with you, this is not uh, a wonderful success story. <laughs> this is more of a, a current stirring in my heart that's really, I think, related to what we're getting at today. So I'm in summer mode, uh, which for me means I have a few things off my plate, but the main thing that's back on my plate is I have to do a lot of work to prepare and pull together a curriculum for uh, our men's uh, discipleship group Axios. And this year, uh, we're gonna be going, next, this next year, we're gonna be going after uh, a rule of life. That is these practices and postures that can help cultivate our life with God. And, um, and two of them, uh, one is, uh, there's nine that we're gonna be touching on. Two of them, one is simplicity, and one is hospitality. And I've been just getting wrecked as I've really been diving in to those two in particular. Um, I like simplicity. I, I, I joke with some friends who knew, knew this about me. During COVID, I read five books on simplicity and minimalism. <laughs> I'm glad you recognize the irony in that. 
Uh, but for me, simplicity is almost sort of like, I like unhurried, I like zen, if you will. Uh, uh, I like that kind of peaceful life. But guess what? It's me. It's about my environment is what that's about. Hospitality. I love our home. Um, we, it's, it's beautiful. It's comfortable. We love having our friends over. Uh, it's a refuge. Uh, for me, it's the safe place, and um, and so when I think of hospitality, my first kind of reaction is that kind of territory. The problem is biblical hospitality has really nothing to do with that, very little to do with that. Uh, it has to do with welcoming the stranger. Your home is a hospital, and so I've I've been discovering that I have these little territories this real estate in my life that I've sort of just cordoned off for me. Simplicity for me. But a biblical notion of simplicity is to make room for others, make room for love. It's not just to be have less stuff. It's have less stuff so that you free up resources to love and to redirect, to free up time so that you can redirect for purposes of love. Home, uh, so that hospitality, so that you can actually welcome the stranger, welcome the, the marginalized, welcome, welcome the people that are on, the, on the, uh, the fringes, on the edges, not just kind of be happy and comfortable and with your crew. And so that's kind of what I've been confronted with. And um, so I'm thinking about that. So you know, Dave talked about it's important to think about these things. So I've been thinking about these things. And it's really, I, I sense a lot of resistance in my heart. Just because the nature of our job as pastors is we're, it's hard work. And we're, we give ourselves, but I, I sort of, I realize I'm giving myself like this is, you can get this part of me, Lord, but I need these little spots for me. So God is doing a work uh, in me, and so I need to think about that. And not just think about that, I need to think about concrete steps to like, well, what do I do to be more faithful? So I have some thoughts that I'm stewing, I won't talk about them uh, now. And they're little baby steps, honestly. Um, especially around our home, even with our neighbors. I mean, I'm a nice guy in our neighborhood. I'm friendly. We have conversations like, hey, I love your you know, yard, or you know, whatever's going on. But in terms of like, come in my home and um, let's be together. And there's some strange people, honestly. <laughs> and so I've been like, ah, you know, I'll just do that on the lawn. <laughs> anyway. So uh, anyway, all that to say, that's a little bit of what's been stirring. But so I want to invite us right now to just go to the Lord. I've been going to the Lord, and um, you, this could produce guilt and shame. When you go, oh, I suck, you know, at, at, at this. But guilt and shame is, a really, lousy, is really lousy fuel. It's a lousy fuel. 
What we want is spiritual inspiration. I love that line. It just hit me when we were singing it, be thou but my vision. Power of my power. We want his power to be behind our power. I can't bootstrap this. I can't like come up with this great plan and then seek to kind of solve this problem in Mark Page's life through my strength. It has to be spiritually empowered and inspired. And wherever we are at, whatever we may be feeling right now, we can just bring that before the Lord. And so that's what we're going to do right now. I just want to take some time to let's just go to the Lord right now. And whatever you may be feeling, um, bring that. Uh, So let's just bow together and I'll kind of walk us through a prayer. But first, let's just, just take a moment of quiet and just bring whatever is in your heart as you've been confronting God's word and consider that for a moment. What's so great about our Father in heaven is he knows, he knows what's up. There's nothing we need to do to actually reveal anything to him. What we're called to do is just be honest, whatever it is. Be honest before the Lord. If you're finding yourself feeling conviction, Pray that the Lord inspires your vision for something different and that you don't just try to work it out in your own strength. If you're finding resistance in your heart, just say, Lord, help. I want to want this or help me to want to want it. If there's just apathy, Lord, just pray that he might stir something fresh in your heart. Father, you know us, and, um, and Lord, so we, we just come to you right now, bringing us <laughs> to you and say, help, help us, wherever we're at. Lord, we don't want to waste our lives contending with things that honestly don't matter that much, ultimately. We don't want to look back and go, gosh, that was just a big misappropriation of my time and resources and energies, Lord. So, Lord, help us to, to make the, first of all, help us to see this, and then help us to, to make the kind of changes that would move us towards faithfulness, Lord. But please, Lord, may it be you that's our fuel. May your spirit 
be the one driving us. And as we make these steps, little or big, we know you're pleased. We're grateful for that, Lord. Help us as a community. I, we're thinking maybe for ourselves, Lord, but man, can you just do a work in this whole community, this church family at Grace, that we might have this communal resurgence, this, this um, collective conviction that together we might live more faithfully. You as our priority, treasuring you and your kingdom above all else. Help us, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>